0: Um, So, we are, (laughs) from the sublime to the ridiculous, or the I don't know, Um, but we're going to jump into the Word of God together. Now, when I planned out the sermon series, I I wasn't entirely kind of on it as to what topics I'd be doing uh, when all the children are in, so I I am going to be doing a topic that might at face value sound a little bit scary for parents, don't freak out, I'm fairly sure I'm not going to say anything inappropriate. Okay, but if you are at all concerned, then do please head downstairs. You can, be, you can still hear, and you can see, but you can also, um, you know, appropriately rugby tackle your kids and cover them over if you think it, uh, it's not that scary. Don't, I've really sold it now, haven't I? You're like, what's he going to talk about? It's all right. Next week, Ronald is going to be sharing about whether it's okay for a Christian to smoke pot. Um, or he genuinely is. Or to drink alcohol, and you know, it's it's a kind of an interesting question. We are talking about in our mornings at the moment. Is it okay for a Christian to dot 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 question mark? And um, there it is. And uh, what what we've been saying is, come on, Christians, uh, you know, you might answer a bunch of questions via the, the modern wonders of Siri, Google, and Wikipedia. But to live your Christian life, you have access to incredible treasure trove of wisdom. Yeah? Okay. Some of you are looking at me like, what book is he holding? Uh, It's the Bible. Okay. A little kind of Bible 101. Uh, And God's heart for you is that actually you might know his heart. You know, the Bible tells us right early on that there are the revealed things of God that belong to us and for our children, children's children. Yeah, there are hidden things, but God wants to reveal to you what you need to know to be like Jesus. Anyone here want to be like Jesus? Yeah, okay, we're in the right place. Uh, And not only to be like Jesus, but to kind of reveal that goodness and grace in the world. And so we're asking, okay, not is it okay if I do this or that, I want to tick the box, I wanna just kind of quickly and carefully answer the question and then move on. Rather, we're asking ourselves these questions so that we might be like God, that we might know his heart. So in all of the questions that we've been asking so far, and, and the same will continue, we're actually saying, okay, God, what is the framework for living as a follower of Jesus? How might we know your love? And how might we show your love in the world? we're not just answering thorny questions, but we're learning how to read the Bible. How to read it to understand its meaning and to submit ourselves, our choices, our behavior, to our belief in the one we behold in the pages of this wonderful book. Another way of putting it is to realize that the Bible offers us what we might term lenses. Ways of looking at the world which enable us to better know our God, and how He would reveal His glory in us and through us. You know, when we better understand the nature of the Bible, one of the upshots is that we can better understand the purpose of preaching. Now, our subject for today is: Is it okay for a Christian to attend a gay wedding? I told it. I told you I might give some of your conniptions, but uh, yeah, but it's not quite the topic that we addressed some time ago when we talked about all issues of human sexuality and I'm I'm not going to go over all of that ground again if you want to know what we believe as a church then please go listen to the podcast you know come and chat about it with me or the elders or or someone in your your transformed community leader would love to kind of go over that material again we're not going to go over all of that material again but just to say when I did talk about human sexuality. And that was within a wider remit of talking about identity. Where does our identity lie? Who are we as human beings? When I talked about that, um, I felt that the responses I received from many folks in the church were quite illuminating. Now, you're lovely people. Sometimes I wish you a bit less lovely, if I'm honest, a bit less polite, and a, you know, a bit more kind of, you know, rough around the edges, but you are, you're delightful and charming. You'd think that would be a compliment, wouldn't you? But the way I say it, it never quite sounds like... Anyhow, um, your kindly-meant responses to my preaching of things like, well done, Pastor Greg, and that was brave, and things like that. I think actually responses like that when we talk about issues of, uh, of human sexuality, identity, some of the really big things of our world... They illustrate that we as a church haven't yet understood or realized our purpose. A well done to me is at most partially deserved, as though anything much has been achieved. You know, if you were to look around you within this church today, and I suspect that the same is true of most churches. There aren't many people in our churches who are seeking us out because they are genuinely struggling with issues of sexuality or identity more broadly. There aren't many people who say when they struggle with these kinds of things, oh yes, I'll go to a church because there I'll find a place of grace where I might actually understand God's wisdom on the matter. There's a caveat there, if you are here today, And you are personally wrestling with these things. It's quite possible. I may say some stuff today that you might find difficult, even troubling. But you are welcome. How does that welcome show itself? You're welcome to come and say to me, if you can, if you feel comfortable to do that, I really disagree with that. Why did you say that? You're more than welcome to to debate these things. And, And I hope this morning what I will show is is that the Bible has some clear instruction to us, not just on this one topic, but more broadly, how we might have biblical lenses that help us to understand. You see, when I preach something, my goal is not to talk about something in an echo chamber where we all agree the same things and we can just encourage one another. Oh, thank goodness, somebody said what I wanted to say. And then we could just pat one another on the back and say, isn't it great that we all think the same things? And that we all kind of agree and that we all just are happy kind of going on together in life. This is not the goal of preaching. This is not the goal of a church. It's not just a slap on the back club. Don't slap me on the back. It's a little bit red. Oxfest wouldn't be Oxfest, would it really? Unless Pastor Greg got up and was bright red the day afterwards. One of these days, someone's going to introduce me to sun cream, but... um, Anyhow, the purpose of preaching is people. That you and I would be moved by God's grace and his glory. Not one or the other. Come on. Don't try and pretend that God is love and he's not truth. Don't try and pretend that God is grace and he's not glory. He's both. And we need to be moved by a revelation of a grace filled, glorious God. And that compelled by the love of Christ, we would want to take truth of Jesus to those around us. Now come on, if the purpose of preaching is that, is people, if that is true, then we need to recognize something very important about the people around us in this world. Especially those that the church historically has been very quick to label as other or different And come on, let's be honest, sometimes we ourselves are tempted to do a bit of us and them kind of thinking. Whether it's about folks who identify as gay, whether it's about people who have different religious worldviews, whether it's about Muslims in our community, whether it's about a homeless person or somebody who's struggling with addiction, it's really, really easy to set up us and them kind of differences. To say, are oh, they other to us? And wouldn't it be good if they were like us, but I'm not going to do anything about it? It's not good enough. I want to, I said to Erin as I was sermon prepping this week, I said, I'm going to do a little bit of philosophy with the church on Sunday. And Erin um, and said to me, Oh. <laughs> but I'm still going to do it. <laughs> Um, we talked about it and it's a really helpful concept now all right you have a little piece of paper so if you want to take note you don't want to take notes about this do you we'll get to the bible in a minute i know you want to talk about that but so there was this jewish german philosopher in the early 20th century who went by the name of martin buber and uh, he's a real person you can look him up and um And 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 he one of his key thinkings was something that he called I and thou. Okay? Now it's old fashioned language, isn't it? But it's like me and you. But it's a bit deeper. Now the purpose of it is this, right? Okay. He said that humans are only humans relationally. That there's something really unique about us that we don't exist independently. We are made relationally. We exist relationally. We act and interact relationally. That is fundamental to our nature. Is everyone on board with that? Yeah? And so basically he said, well, look at it like this. There's I and it. Yeah? So there are so many objects, so many things in our world. So, you know, if I want a cup of coffee in the morning, I go and I make myself a cup of coffee. I pick up the cup of coffee. I drink the cup of coffee. I am in charge of that cup of coffee. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And and the second and the third and the fourth that follow it. But it's the same with any other thing in life. You know, we we kind of interact with things on our own kind of basis. We're the ones who are in charge. But when we come to another person, something else is happening. We don't experience another person like we would experience an object. No, no, no. We encounter another person. Because fundamentally, when we're coming to another person, they're coming to us as well. I don't know whether you ever thought about it in that way. You know, oftentimes in our interactions with other people, we really only think about things or look at things from our own perspective. Anyone ever fallen into the trap of somebody's chatting with you in conversation, and you find that all your mind is doing is thinking of the next thing that you're going to say back? Uh, anyone going to admit (laughs) we do it don't we because we're so caught up in our own sense of personhood in what we think and what we feel and what we want to say that sometimes we don't allow for what's going on with another and it's good to have a reset in this when we encounter someone they're encountering us yeah when we look at somebody actually let's take this deeper We're looking at another person who was created in the very image of God. That's how he started it in the beginning. And I can't find in my Bible that he changed his plan at any point. At no point did God say, I'm gonna make everybody in my image except for this group of people or people like that or from this country or who look like that or sound like that or do this or do... No, 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 no. When we encounter someone They're encountering us, and each of us are seeing another who is made in the image of God. Not only that, we begin to recognize that there's another dimension of the I and the thou. That actually, our relationships with one another ought to reflect a relationship with God. That he has made us for encounter with him. You now, we love singing don't we you're a good good father it's a relational word father it doesn't exist except for in relationship i'm not a dad if i don't have judah and Nora. i am because they are the same is true with our relationship with god the father we call him father because he has made us his children And he has made us into this relationship with him. This is how we can call him such. And God has made people for relationship with him. So much so that Jesus died for us all. And remind yourself, Jesus died both for people who will accept him, but he died for people who he knew would reject him. You know, Jesus died for Judas. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus died not only for the robber who said yes, but for the robber who said no? Do you know that Jesus gave himself for everybody equally? So fundamentally, as we begin this morning, I want us to do a bit of a reset in our minds. There is no way that you or I have any mandate from God To label people, to put them in the simplistic boxes of our own limited understanding, thereby treating them as though they're just objects for us to deal with as we see fit. No, no, no. When we encounter another, they encounter us. And if we're people who are encountering God, then our first hope and thought should be, how do I help this other person encounter God as well? If that's not your first thought, then you need to change your dynamic with that person. This goes for everything. Come on. You know, we talk a bit about parenting. I, you know, honestly, I'm a terrible parent. And you know, oftentimes, I just want my kids just to you know, be still and quiet. This is just it. That's the limit of my understanding sometimes. I'm just like, I just want everything to just be, be calm and still, and can nobody make any noise for some time now. Um, it's, not, it's not good enough. <laughs> You know, I I should be wanting my kids at all times to know God. And so I need him to remake me all the time. All the time. In our encounters with one another is our first thought, how can I love them so that they know the love of God? You know, when we go out of this building, do we think the same way? How can I love that person so that they can love God? So they can know the love of God. If that's not our first thought, then we need to reset everything. Everything. There is simply nothing. No religious worldview, no gender identity or sexuality, no political persuasion, no ethnicity or nationality that can change this truth for us. People are made by God to bear his image. And just because we ruin that, left to our own devices, and let's be honest, we do. Everybody sins. Because of that, Jesus has come to restore everybody to himself. Everybody, that's his heart, is to restore everybody. How do you want to be a part of that? How do you want to be a part of that? So, to our question today, a gay wedding. Now, you've received an invitation, perhaps, from a friend or a colleague, maybe from a family member. You care for them, and they care for you, 'Cause they sent you the invites. You might even say that you love them. But you also love God. You also honour the Bible. And we as a church affirm traditional views of sexuality and of and of relationships in this world. Now many Christians we would come to this thing and you know, we love our friend, we love our family member, we love our colleague, whoever it might be. They've invited us, and, and many of many of us we kind of we, we're looking for an out. We're like God. Would you give me an easy way out? And so we're like, well, Jesus attended a wedding. That—that's my—that's my way. Hmm. I'm sure that's enough. Well, you might say, well, Jesus ate dinner with those that the Bible identifies as sinners. That's true. But is that everything that's going on? Well, we'll we'll dig into that. You might also say Jesus cared for, valued, and protected those considered outcast or marginalized or the weak or the vulnerable in society. That's very true, and so must we. Isn't it enough, you might say, to say that we should simply affirm those who are different on the margins of society? Well, it's instructive, provides a framework for our love, but it's not enough. What I'm going to show this morning is there are two competing tensions here in answering the question. What's the first thing? The fact that you love and care for the person getting married means the answer should seem to be yes. It's difficult to see how not going to the ceremony demonstrates love and care. But the fact that biblically it's not actually a marriage means that the answer should be no. It's difficult to see how going to the ceremony communicates anything other than your approval. So if you don't approve, but you go anyway, you're acting dishonestly or with hypocrisy. Now, the canny amongst you will have noticed that Pastor Greg said that a gay marriage is not a marriage biblically. Now, what is my basis for saying that? It's important. It's important. We shouldn't just say these things just because that's what we have assumed or received from others we certainly shouldn't say it because of any inherent prejudice in our hearts God help us no 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 how might we know this well if we want to know what a marriage is we must consider how can we know things about a marriage by which I mean what does the designer of marriage God himself tell us about it in the Bible firstly we recognize that marriage is not a human institution. We get caught up in the human elements of marriage, don't we? And they can be really beautiful and precious. But marriage is not made by humans. It was instituted by God right from the very beginning when Eve was brought into the life of Adam and Adam into the life of Eve and they were given one to another. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two. Right from the beginning through all the descriptions of Bible marriage in the Bible, even the good marriages and the bad marriages because there are bad marriages in the Bible, okay? You know, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that you know it's the example for us. But even so... In the good marriages and the bad marriages, every single one is between a man and a woman. There are many different ways of getting married, many different cultural norms for marriage. But biblical marriage is always between a man and a woman. Which brings us to a related point. oftentimes we think that the sole signifying marker for marriage is love. And uh, here's the most profound thing I'm going to say today. You should love someone that you're married to. I just want to point that out, uh, you know, just in case you were confused about this. But, uh, you should love them. Um, but love is not actually the only thing about marriage. And perhaps it's not even the primary thing about a marriage. C.S. Lewis, he said something about this. He framed it like this. He said, love may well be the spark that got the engine of marriage going. But it's not going to be the only thing that your marriage needs to keep going. He says there's going to be a great deal of patience and faithfulness and kindness and even a a higher vision of of marriage to keep that sucker going. I don't think C.S. Lewis called marriage a sucker, but you know, uh, he's a bit better with words than me. But you know, love may be the spark, but actually, a great deal more is needed to sustain a marriage biblically. Okay, well, if love isn't the only thing about a marriage, what does the Bible say is important about a marriage? Two things. Firstly, marriage is a covenant of relationship. It is not a contract. You know, we sign contracts. You have to register for your marriage. You have to do all the legalities. And, and you know these are good things. It's actually helpful for relationships in the civil world to be regulated in an appropriate fashion. That's important. But that's not the fundamental thing about a marriage. A marriage is a covenant of relationship. Marriage is after the pattern of God's greatest heart for relationship between himself and his people, the church. It speaks into the here and now, every marriage does, should do, of something eternal, of Jesus and his bride, the church. What does marriage tell us? It tells us that as a husband is like his bride, but also different, so we the church are like our God, but also different. We bear his image. You're made in the image of God. And he is our God, and loves us, but we are the created, and he is the creator. We're not God. Does anybody need to remind themselves of that from time to time? We're not God. We're not even the master of our own situations, let alone anything more. We're like him, but we're different. How else can I put it? I'm like my wife in some ways. We share some interests. We share some things of outlook in life. But there are ways in which we are different. And thank God for that. Because if I was married to the female version of me, I think we would both have gone mad by now. I don't want to be married to me. I want to be married to someone who's better than me. And, uh, and that has happened. Um, I, you know, don't, no, it's too late to say no, Pastor Greg. That's not the truth. I know what you believe. but um, We're like one another, but we're, we're different. And it's a revelation Of relationship with God. In all seriousness, the difference between man and a woman in marriage is not an arbitrary construct. It's not just, oh well most people think that's the way it should be but it doesn't have to be. But it's a designed revelation of human nature, of the nature of God and of the eternal union of humanity and God which we're headed for. It's the first thing about marriage. The second thing about marriage is in God's Design for this world it is intended for the the continuation of the community of people through procreation now I know when I say that some of you and I know that there, there are many folks within our church and and that's not been a part of your experience within marriage it just hasn't been possible that doesn't mean that your marriage is, is worth anything less but neither can we say that that is not a part of the intent of marriage, We live in a world which is broken. We live in a world where not everything does happen as it is intended. That doesn't mean that the design was wrong. It just means that the way we as humans have dealt with the design has led to some very tragic consequences. And it's not to say that those who, who are dealing with those consequences have sinned in a way that has led to that. That is not true. Rather, it is the broken and fallen nature of the whole of creation that leads to tragic consequences. It doesn't change the design. It's God's intent, Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply. It's God's intention that for the duration of this earth, until Jesus comes again and makes a new world, but for the here and now, God intended for men and women to come together in the lifelong union of marriage and to continue the community. In the the world to come, there'll be no more death. And it it seems to me that it's part of God's economy then to change things. The Bible teaches us that men and women won't be given to one another in marriage anymore. Rather, we'll be united with our God. Things will have changed. We have to say, they must have changed for the better. Because to be with God is better. But in the here and now, these are the images and the revelations that we have for the marriage now. So what? Now, I've already said, we don't affirm biblical truth just so we can feel right. We certainly don't affirm biblical truth so we can pat ourselves on the back and say we're better. Or that you know, we've got you know, things right. And come on, if that's your heart, please, please please open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit so that you might be convicted of your sin. Because it is sin. It's sin to be proud, even in biblical truth. It is sin to use biblical truth as something to beat other people up with. It is sin. And if at any point, in any way, we take biblical truth into our world and we hurt people with it, then we are sinning. Can I make that, is that plain? If we hurt people with biblical truth, then we sin, and we need to ask God's forgiveness. But we also need biblical truth. What can we distance ourselves from, that kind of arrogant attitude, but what can we bring ourselves close to? Now, a couple of passages of scripture that we, we don't have the time to go into in detail, you will be very, very glad to know but you will probably wanna have a look at for yourself. Now in Romans chapter 14, um, Paul is talking to this church led by the Spirit uh, about matters of of, of how, can we judge one another? Is it appropriate, how may we judge one another? Now, you've gotta know context, otherwise you're misreading the Bible. And what he's talking about here is, he's talking about things that people are eating and the circumstances that they are eating them in, cultural or religious kind of manners of eating, perhaps. So this is not like, oh, we can just take everything here and say that it's not just about food, but it's about sex, or it's about anything or anything or anything. That's not true. However, there is a really important principle for us here in the way that we deal with one another, okay? in the way that we might deal with one another as people of faith. In verse 4 of chapter 14, Paul says to them, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now why is that important? It helps us again to recognize the nature of one another. So within the household of faith, there is a, a, an element whereby judging one another can be appropriate. What I mean by that is help one another. If you see one another stumbling or hurting or getting things wrong, come alongside one another. Be a part of their gracious correction and restoration to God. But recognize you're not the master of them. You're not anybody else's boss. Okay? So if you are led and enabled by God to help another and to bless them, you do so not because you're their master, but because you're their friend. And you can help someone else to know the grace of God and to know that they will be upheld by God because God enables us to stand. That's grace to us now how can we take this a little further we went over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 we now start to see how the church interacts with a broken and hurting culture because there within this passage of scripture we see how there are some folks and they're connecting with the church because this Corinthian church they got a lot of things wrong but I tell you what they didn't they didn't have a closed door policy we can say that in their favour They were connecting with a lot of the the woundedness and the hurts and the needs of their culture. Now, within that context, there was somebody who was doing things wrong according to their sexual identity and their morality. And Paul teaches them how they can deal with these people. He says, when it's within the church, there's one way of dealing with these things. When it's outside of the church, what can we know? He says this in verse 12. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We have a responsibility as a church to live according to God's holy scripture. To be made holy even as God is holy but we do not have a responsibility to demand holiness from a hurting world. You can't do it, and it won't happen. And if you try and demand behavior from people who have no belief and have never beheld a loving Savior, then at best you'll get them to just fake some nonsense for a while. At worst, you're going to break them even more. Don't demand that the world should look like Jesus until they've met Jesus. And how do people meet Jesus? Through us. So, if you're not willing to do that groundwork, then can we stop ranting and raving at people? Is there any chance? Is there any chance that the church in society can actually be the means of society coming to know Jesus Christ and not the means of people being distanced from God? Any chance? Helpful judgment of one another in the church. Encouragement, correction. That's biblical and valuable. But we have no mandate to judge those who are not yet Christians. Our opinions, our RSVPs to wedding invitations, they are not opportunities to pass judgment. What are they then? Well, you received that invitation. Do your gay friends know your views on gay marriage? And if so, why are they still inviting you? Because this is when it starts to get interesting. You can't spectate at a wedding. I know weddings are spectacles, but you can't spectate at a wedding. Biblically, anybody who is invited to be at a wedding is there as a witness to what is going on. You feel this, I'm sure, when you're present at a wedding, that your being there is a deeply connected thing. You're there and you are as part of a community, even though it might be gathered just for a moment. In our marriage ceremonies as a Christian church, we acknowledge the role of the church gathered. We are present as an affirming body and as those who resolve to sustain the marriage now entered into. So for a Bible-honoring Christian, this presents, I would suggest, an insurmountable obstacle to attending a gay wedding. Either we say we are affirming the wedding by our presence, or we say that the marriage actually has got nothing to do with the people who are present, even though our Christian belief says it does. Now, The only way that I have thought it possible to attend would be for an honest and open conversation of love to be had with the couple in question a conversation wherein you make it clear that you cannot affirm a picture or a practice of marriage that is contrary to the revealed will of God, that you believe that homosexual relations are contrary to his will, and that they're sinful and separate people from their only true hope of salvation, but that you love those who are inviting them, and that under that basis you would be willing to be present as a sign of your love for them. If that satisfies them, as well as you, then it might be possible to attend. Good luck with that. I, I, I'm not speaking to you, just trying to load a burden on you. I, I have a friend, had a friend, I don't know anymore. And, um, and he's, he's gay. And, uh, and we just lost each other over the years and and it's never stopped hurting if I'm honest a little while back I reached out to him and, um, and he very graciously agreed to meet with me and we had coffee and we went a little way towards healing some wounds just a tiny bit there were some misunderstandings that were easy to clear up but there's a pretty big gulf between us still and I tried to get another coffee with him but he's gone again and um I don't know whether I'm ever gonna see him again in this life or the next. And if I'm honest with you, it really hurts. And so I'm not suggesting to you a way of practice that I just think, oh, I'm just gonna chuck this at people and then run away. You know, these things, that they'll hurt. If you wanna be biblically honoring and yet love people, what you're actually doing is entering the way of Christ. And Christ got hurt. He got hurt for the sake of honoring his father and loving everybody around him. He got hurt. And my little testament, my little story there, it's pretty small and my pain, it's not massive. I know that for my friend, his pains over the years have been much bigger and for that I'm very sorry. But you will enter into a way of pain if you want to love your Father and love people around you. Come on, one step further before I close. We can't say that, oh, I'll just go because Jesus spent time with the socially marginalized. That cheapens Jesus' uniqueness and his earthly ministry. Come on, pay attention to Jesus. Can you do that? Folks who invited Jesus to be with them even if they were called sinners, even if they self-identified as sinners, even if they were far from God and they knew it, they invited Jesus, not so that they could be affirmed where they were at by Jesus, but because they knew that he was the only one who could take them from where they were at and get them where they could never go on their own. That's why they wanted Jesus to come. There's a woman at a well with multiple broken relationships and she wanted jesus another woman caught in adultery found jesus to be her only rescuer only rescuer no one else would there's a cheating tax collector who clambers up a tree because he wants jesus to get him out of his mess Honestly, there's piles of cheating tax collectors in the Bible who want Jesus. Read it. They're like, the cheating tax collectors are Jesus' number one fan club in the Bible. They're like, help us, Jesus, we're so messed up. And they want him. Not so that Jesus can come and have dinner with them, tell them a few good stories and then leave them be. No, they're like, how do I get out of my mess? He's my only hope. There's people who were lepers in their society and no one would even go near them, let alone touch them. But they wanted Jesus because he would. There's people oppressed by demons, for goodness sakes, and they wanted Jesus. They sought him out. There's literally nobody that this world says is beyond the pale that didn't want Jesus. Not so that Jesus could come and say, carry on as before, but so that they could get a rescue from the greatest rescue the world has ever known. And that's why, just as a side note, I could never attend an iftar meal at the end of Ramadan. It's not because I wouldn't want to value a Muslim or have them as my friend, but because by doing so, it would be an affirmation of their religious practice, which I believe cannot lead them to Jesus and through him to salvation. But if they wanted to go out for a KFC, then absolutely, absolutely. You know, and have a meal and talk about the hope that can be found in Jesus, by all means. This is the difference. We can't affirm a broken world, but you've got to get into a broken world and love it with the one who is the truest and greatest healer. Everybody longed for a new and a living way, and they knew that Jesus could deliver that. Not because he had the right answers off pat and could lob truth grenades from a distance and then get off but because he got into the brokenness and the hurts and the pains of his world. And because people knew, they knew he was for real and that he loved them. And so even though the truth might mean a wholesale transformation of their life, they wanted him to come nonetheless. They were like, Jesus, I know I look nothing like you today, but I still want you. Can you help me? There's your biblical lens for the day. Do you want to be like Jesus? Come on. It's, it's a tense place to be. To honor your father and to love your neighbor. It's not nearly as easy as it sounds, is it? it sounds easy, it's not easy. But God is present with us. And he can take nice ideas words on pages and he can make them all live realities could you stand with me would you do that